It is good to greet each of you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ on this, the first day of the week. And we hope that you feel welcome. Uh, same as those who are joining us by way of live stream. Always glad to have you here. We commend your faithfulness. We are gathered together in the presence of God and with His Word in our lap and the main thing we do here has to do with the study of His Word. We call that Scripture. And uh, I would invite you to turn with me to the book of Habakkuk. And this will be the final installment in our short series. And if you remember, this would have been a month ago. Uh, and talking about looking at the year 2021... And taking what we've got left of the book of John, we start in chapter 18 next week. But in order to look at each of those paragraphs, roughly uh, one week each, and to land on the right passage for Easter, we needed about a month. So, decision was made to go with Habakkuk. And then it seems as if the world went crazy, and we had exactly what we needed to study. Uh, I call that the providence of God, who always rewards faithfully teaching through His Word, verse by verse. But think of this as uh, the season finale. We'll look at the last portion, which seems different than the previous two chapters we've, we've read and discussed. But the way we do with each of these, let's read it first. And today we'll look at the whole chapter. It's one of those that is more lengthy, but it seems best to take it all in one piece and we'll ask for help in prayer and we'll go verse by verse. Verse 1, chapter 3 of Habakkuk's prophecy, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigionoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of of the years make it known in wrath remember mercy God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran his splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise his brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, 
For the salvation of your anointed, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me. Rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret, you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of many waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this hymn given to the choir master to be sung together in the temple with stringed instruments. Lord, help us to understand what this means. Lord, use it to help us understand what to do right here and now. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we ask that you teach us. That we make full use of this time in your presence. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see. And Lord, we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, what we've learned over the past three weeks and continue with today um, from this short prophecy that the prophet Habakkuk is that things aren't so different from Habakkuk's time as the time we live in in some ways in some other ways it couldn't be more different Um, he had no technological advances like we do uh, he had no benefit of uh, modern medicine. Uh, he didn't carry in his pocket a supercomputer that could put at his fingertips just about any book ever written. And if he wanted to have it in hard copy, if he didn't mind paying expedited shipping, having it in his hands tomorrow. Uh, he didn't have access to the variety of foods that we do he didn't have climate control not only in his house but in his car he didn't have nice paved roads to drive that car on and I could go on and on I think the point is made but at the same time even with all the technological advances that we have we still haven't been able to climb up over top of the things that Habakkuk has been on about in this book. Life is still a mess. Life is still very fragile. Life still hurts very bad at certain times. And life has its anxieties, its confusion, even its terror, 
Even though we want to think that we can control our lives like we control just about everything else, that would be the, the, the utter highest point of foolishness that anyone who has a brain could agree to. That's the same stuff. Uh, Habakkuk's feeling the same emotions that we do. And it's just been this last year that's put us in the frame of mind to be able to look out on the future and admit, I have no idea what to expect. So we've learned a lot from this guy. So long ago and in such a different place. The task that is ours, even when reading a, a passage like his, we gather in this place on a weekly basis, or you watch from your home. And what we do here is gather around a book. And that's really what a church should, church should gather around. If it's any other reason than this old ancient book, those... Those are missteps. And having this book, which we consider to be eternal truth, the very words of God, who said exactly what he wanted to say, exactly how he wanted to say it, to give us exactly what we needed to know, should put us in a position where others that don't treasure this as what we believe it to be uh, would find themselves. But, even with that... We still don't have everything we would like to know. And God in his wisdom seems to withhold from us every last detail of what he's doing. He gives us some, but not all. He knows a lot that he isn't telling us. So even though we share the same questions with the world, whether it's today or millennia ago, how long will this go on? Why is this allowed to go on? Those questions still persist. And it's not like we have to leave this room where we value this book and then huddle around in little circles where we're comfortable hazarding the question, why or how long? We find those questions in the book itself from the men who are supposed to be God's spokespeople. They're the ones asking the question, why and how long? So we're not going to get rid of those questions, but what we're going to learn today is what to do in response to God's answer to those questions and how his answer to those questions can be and must be enough. So with that as a, an introduction of sorts, a prelude of what to expect, let's look at this third chapter. It's different than the other two. Sounds different. There's a lot of colorful words used, a lot of imagery. Seems like it would need a soundtrack, doesn't it? And it comes with, with, with a stringed instrument soundtrack. It's meant to be sung. But like many of the other psalms that we see in the book of Psalms, this one actually has a superscription. You know what a superscription is? That's a little note at the beginning. If your Bible has... This text arranged with all the indentions as if it's poetry, because it is poetry. You might at the beginning have a regular looking sentence there at verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigionoth. 
How many of you wondered when that was read a moment ago, what does that mean? I'm afraid this it must be put in the category of the things that some men used to know. Certainly God knows, but we don't know. <laughs> Probably has to do with music or maybe a genre of music. But even that's a guess. We don't know. You might notice that the word Selah is in here many times. And you may notice if you've got an ESV that they throw it all the way to the other side of the margin. As if not to have them encumber your reading. Because they acknowledge also, we don't know what that means. It's some type of a musical notation, likely. But we do know, it's obvious, that this is a prayer. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. In the style of, or according to this type of poetry or verse, that's that indication. But it also has a component similar to 55 other psalms. And that's at the end, which is different, to the choir master with stringed instruments. Other 55 psalms that have to the choir master have it at the beginning. It's unclear why Habakkuk puts it at the end, but it's no different. Just in a different place. Very little of this prayer, if we're being technical, is intercession. You ever heard that intercessory prayer? You're praying for someone else or making a request. The only request made in the whole thing is in verse 2. Where he asks the Lord to revive it in the midst of years. Make it known. Revive what we know to be true of you in the past. We want to be... Sure of that even now. That's the only request. The rest of it is basically an address. A speech to God. Reflecting on God's actions in the past. As a basis for being sure of his faithfulness in the future. That's a good summary of this chapter. He's looking to the past at what God had done in Israel's history. In order to gain a basis. A hope for him doing the same in the future, knowing that the future is unclear. Now, this prayer was pre-written, as opposed to being extemporaneous. I mean, if you use the word extemporaneous this week, probably not. Extemporaneous just means you make it up as you go. You'd probably do better to use the word freestyle. People would know more of what you're talking about than extemporaneous. But this was no freestyle prayer. This according to many of the scholars, is about as eloquent and exalted as any passage of Scripture you'll find. This is thought through. A lot of attention is given to detail. We'll see that as, as we go along. A lot of vivid imagery. But it was meant to be sung. It was meant to be sung together in public in the temple. But if you don't, if, if none of this fascinates you so far, I hope the next statement will, and I hope you'll write it down. As a prayer, this was addressed to God, right? That's what we do with prayers. The recipient of this is, is our Creator. But it's also Scripture. So it's also addressed back to you. Scripture is God's Word, right? So God is speaking to us through a prayer spoken to Him. Now to keep ourselves organized this morning, we'll use the following outline... I know some of you like to keep well-written notes, and that's good. But here they are. They're very simple. First of all, Habakkuk reacts. And this is verse 2 and verse 16. 
This is where if you like keeping real neat notes, well, it's kind of jumbled up because two places in here, it seems he's reacting to what he said. Verse 2 and verse 16. Then secondly, Habakkuk reviews, and this is the body of this chapter from 3 to 15, and it sounds like a poetic rehearsal of history in language that has to really be thought through to make sure you know what he's referring to. And then third, this is at the end, Habakkuk rejoices. This is 16 through 20. So I know we've got 16 mentioned under two headings, but just hang in there. Hopefully it should make sense. So Habakkuk reacts, back to verse 1, prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigionoth, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. So we can go ahead and at least establish this moving forward. It's almost as if to say, I've heard this stuff since I was a kid. All the stories of ancient Israel. But now I see them. That's a big difference as far as understanding goes. Now, if you're just talking about your senses, hearing and tasting and smelling and seeing, but as far as understanding, we use, I hear you, but really, when you really get both hands around something, you say, oh, I see. That's kind of what's going on here. I've heard the report of you, but now I fear. I see it more clearly than I've ever seen it before. As such, in the midst of the years, like right now, revive in us what these others felt when the sea opened, when the sun stood still. All these marvelous things that people saw with their own eyes or felt the earthquake under their feet as it opened up and swallowed a group of people that had risen against you. Do all that. Revive it. Bring it back. Do it again, is what he's saying. Y'all remember that uh, popped into my mind, the, the Lifesavers commercial? It would have been when I was little where the sun is setting and the kid says, do it again, Daddy. Some of you remember it. This is like Habakkuk saying, that was, that was what we need. Do that again. He says at the end here, in wrath, remember mercy. Do it though, but remember your mercy when you show us your wrath. The wrath is coming, he feels. So in the midst of years, revive it. Do it again. And usually when revival breaks out, it's not during the good times. It's when we're in a mess. That's when we're serious. That's when our hearts are open and sensitive. That's when revival breaks out. So that's Habakkuk reacts. We'll get to verse 16 as we move forward. So we'll hold on to that one. But immediately in verse 3, Habakkuk begins to review. What does he want revived? Well, he begins to elaborate. And what follows is this poetic means of rehearsal, Israel's past in order to frame its future. Now, just to give you some insight as to the, the literary work we're looking at, for those of you that like to keep track of some of these things that make it such a piece of work, 
from 3 through 7, we're going to read in the third person. From 8 through 15, we're going to get into the second person. And then from 16 through, it's the first person. So he's changing, but it seems to be in one direction. As if he's talking about things that he has distanced information all the way back to this is how I personally see, feel, hear this. Look at verse 3. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. And there's that word Selah. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. So he's beginning to paint a picture. And because we don't have the luxury of Hebrew culture, living in this period of time, we're less likely to understand what the crowd he was writing this to would have understood. So we're making guesses. But some of these seem to be quite a good fit. Uh, the word Teman means south. And then Mount Paran was seemingly where a stopping point was on the way from Egypt to the promised land. It's likely this is meant to paint the picture of God leading his people safely from bondage into their inheritance. Uh, move on a few verses down. Verse 5, you've got pestilence and plague. Might be a nod to the ten plagues in Egypt that were necessary in making that transition happen. Uh, when you get down to verse 7, you've got a mention of Cushan and Midian. Those are likely references to what we studied a couple of summers ago in the book of Judges. You remember with Othniel? He came up against this bad fellow, Cushan, Rishathaim. None of us knew who that was. But God helped Othniel bring the people out from under his bondage. And then Midian. Remember the Midianites? That was Gideon. Remember the big dream of the piece of bread rolling down into the valley and squishing all the Midianites? That might be what this is. The sun and the moon standing still in verse 11. Could be speaking of the longer day that Joshua had in order to finish the battle with the Gibeonites. The sun stood still. Look at verse 13. Here's where he seems to do somewhat of a... Making a... a Kind of like a summary of where he's gone so far. And we've skipped over quite a bit. We could be here a long time trying to parse out each piece. But you went out for the salvation of your people. That's verse 13. For the salvation of your anointed. Crush the head of the house of the wicked. Now we've got all kinds of things we can talk about here. But this anointed one would likely be talking about the anointed ones that God seemed to do so much through. Who were... Mortal men, but when you talk of Moses, you you know you actually want to look at him as almost a little different, right? David. And then the last part of the verse certainly has to be pointing to Jesus. Come on, crushing the head from from Genesis three, after having the heel bruised, crushing the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. That's just saying a complete, total beatdown from one end of the body to the other. You know, we talked about uh, Samson whooping them uh, hip and thigh. It's just another way of saying you got them good. 
the anointed one would have to be this. But would not this be a great example of explaining the redemptive work of God from the Garden of Eden all the way to the marriage supper of the land, Lamb? Any time we see God's work, it's for this purpose. You went out for the salvation of your people. All the great stories from Sunday school as a kid. It's all for the same purpose. God is going out for the salvation of his people. And it looks at in specific points in time that it's so long in coming. What has he done? Has he forsaken us? Or is he just letting us feel the actual pangs of our own sinfulness to know our standing between him? But ultimately, none is lost. He planned before the foundation of the world those who would be his forever. And in these verses, through Israel's history, all the way to today, he's coming out for the salvation of his people. Look at verse 14. He's made a summary. And then he goes on with, with more layers. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors. So if we're talking about the God who goes out for the salvation of his people, he's not inept, he's not weak. He has no trouble accomplishing the purposes for which he planned his great work of redemption. Think about that. Pierced his own arrows, the heads of his warriors. This is a headshot with the enemy's own weapon and ammo. That's a way to do it, right? I mean, you could use your weapons, but wouldn't it be better if defeat is your objective to use his own weapons against him? When I'm studying in my room trying to figure out how to best explain certain things, sometimes things pop into my head and uh, it's on me to determine which ones to use and which ones not to use. But I thought maybe this will help. There's a... You could look this up. It's on video. I don't remember when I saw it. But there's this infamous fight that broke out when some folks were trying to play a hockey game. And uh, this man's a commentator now. He was a coach for a while. But it happened a game where Boston is playing uh, New York, the Rangers. And at the end of the game, it's 4-3. to three. Boston's up. And there's a breakaway. One of the Rangers has a shot at the goal and misses. Then you get the buzzer. The fans didn't like this. And one of these fans decides to take a stick and start taking a shot at the players when they're in their box. The players don't want any of this, so the players actually crawl into the stands. And the fans and the players are fighting. The game is over. And in all this that's going on, if you pay attention, one of these fans is on his back and he's kicking one of these players who has pads on, of course. But this player grabs a hold of the man's shoe and with a couple of forceful pumps pulls the shoe off the man and commences to beat him with his own shoe. Now, I don't think the league would let that stuff go on these days. But boy, was it fun to watch. <laughs> and people are still talking about a beatdown with the man's own shoe. 
This is the way our God takes care of the enemy known as sin. By turning its so-called strengths back on them. The Bible's full of these things. You remember uh, Pharaoh. All right? It's time to go. They've had time. I've changed my mind. We'll run them into the Red Sea and we'll bring them back. Actually, they ran into the Red Sea and never came back. What about uh, those men we were talking about a few weeks ago? Um, Daniel, the lion's den. These men devised that plan. Uh, You can't pray certain times, certain ways. And if somebody does, we'll feed them to a bunch of lions. Who actually got fed to the lions? Those men that concocted that plan. Maybe one of the most satisfying of all, once you've read through the story, is the man named Haman who built the gallows to hang Mordecai on. Who hanged on those gallows? Haman. And we just go on and on and on. But what does he do? He pierces with his own arrows the head of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. So let's look at how Habakkuk rejoices. And we're down to verse 16, but remember 16 is also descriptive of how he reacts. Now these final verses of Habakkuk contain some of the most beautiful and profound words ever written, says James Montgomery Boyce. Here's how he described this. What is it that makes this chapter, and particularly the final verses, so forceful? In my judgment, it is the courageous way in which Habakkuk embraces all the calamities he can imagine and nevertheless triumphs over them in the knowledge and love of his Savior. That's exactly what takes place. Now, here's where we go. We went from third person to second person. Verse 16 is where you see the first person. I hear, here's his reaction to all the storytelling that we've just seen. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters to my bones. My legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invaded us. Now, we're going to have to credit this literature with with its intention by seeking to draw the drama out of it. Um, this is is an overwhelmed state. You know, we use the word overwhelmed to talk about sitting in traffic. The correct use of the word overwhelmed, the inability to process and take in what is around me such that legs are shaking and unstable like a baby fawn trying to get up. Speech is turned into babbling Fear washes through this man's body, but it's in awe of the understanding of the God he serves. And what we're given by virtue of this piece of the the book allows us to kind of sort out some of the other parts of the book. It wasn't 
too far back in the second chapter, what we looked at last week and a little bit the week before, where Habakkuk is, is angered over the idol worship. You know, this is, this is what he's supposed to write down about the Babylonians and how foolish such a thing is in contrast to the awe that is inspired by his understanding of, of, of God. So back to that from the beginning, the, the, the pain, the mess of life, its anxieties, its uncertainties, even as advanced as we are, as organized, as powerful, as affluent, as educated, as in control. When it gets down to that stuff, when you stand in front of an open grave and things that your life was built around are gone, there's where the contrast between those idols and this all shines most clearly. You think about it. All the time we spent, we talked about idols, modern day idols, our uh, education, our, our accrued wealth, even our youth we hang on to. You're going to go to that? Is that where you turn? There's nothing there. It could be gold plated. Habakkuk says. But there's no life in it. That does you no good. The God of your salvation is the only thing that will matter when there's nothing left but you and the God of your salvation. So he says here, I will quietly wait for God to sort it out. When he says here, for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. So he's not talking about judgment coming on them, but judgment, judgment coming on the people that judge them. Which is like judgment to the second power. But he's going to wait for the Lord to do all this. What does Habakkuk do? He waits quietly. This is another piece where we can begin to apply contrasts. You know, when everything falls apart, you bow down to a block of wood? No. When everything falls apart, what does Habakkuk do? It looks as if he's, he's changed. He's learned quite a bit. This isn't the Habakkuk of the first two chapters. Chapters 1 and 2, he's saying, how long? Why are you doing this? I thought more about you, the God who can't see evil. I'm disappointed in, in you letting the rest of us worry and wonder about your reputation. Let's see it. Do something. Now, he quietly waits. What's the difference? Did he get the answer he was looking for finally? No. It was just the one answer, and it was a horrible answer. So, did his circumstances change? No. He's in a worse situation. He's days closer to this destruction than he was before so maybe the lord whispered to his ear that i'm gonna insulate you from all that um hey you remember uh rahab the red cord 
will save her house and put them somewhere else. They have the immunity idol from an old show. Is that what he's holding now? Has he got the immunity idol? No. The only thing that has changed with Habakkuk is a clearer view of the holiness of God. That's what's changed him. All has set in. And just like Job, after the 21 questions, there were more. He put his hand over his mouth, not qualified to say a thing. I see you clearly. So as things got worse, he saw better. Imagine that. How many of us think, oh, if I just get this fixed and this fixed and this fixed and this fixed, then I'll have everything square. No, when this breaks and this breaks and this falls apart and this explodes, then you might see better. That's how this works. So let's look at verse 17. And right, we're right back at the notes from two weeks ago. Waiting and listening. That's, that's where Habakkuk is. And it's never easy because only the Lord, Lord knows what's going on and how long it'll take. Things he knows, but he's not telling. So look at what he does in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. It's as if he decides, all right, let me briefly but efficiently and colorfully spell out the worst-case scenario. Uh, there's six clauses here, and they seem to ascend in order of severity. Figs were important to Israel. That's where he starts. And they were expensive. They were a commodity. They're expensive now. Every time I go to Trader Joe's, I love looking at that nice box of figs, but still... I can live without them at that price. Um, but they're really good. It's like nature's candy that, that, that God made. Uh, they're sweet, too. And uh, I think they're the favorite of some of those on some of those diets, you know, Whole30 or whatever. We'll eat God's candy, and it'll be okay. <laughs> but in this case, such as it was, the, the figs and the dates haven't changed it was more of a disappointment than a hardship. So we're talking about dessert here. The grapes, though, the next line, were used to make their wine, which was a daily drink. It was safe and it was shelf-stable. But they had other things to drink. They did have water and they might have milk. So still, this is more of an inconvenience. But when you get to the olive crop, that's needed for oil and for cooking and for lighting their lamps. It had both... Uh, for food, for medicine, and for utility. Now, with this, it's not an inconvenience or a disappointment, but they're losing out on the necessities. The grain that's mentioned here, that would have been barley and wheat, provided the staple of their diet. So failure of the groves in the fields would mean starvation for large segments of the population. We're finally at things they cannot do without. And then both the sheep and the cattle mentioned lastly made up for most of the wealth of the Israelites. 
Sheep and goats provided wool for their clothing, milk for drinking or cheese making, and the occasional meat. The reason why they didn't eat meat very often was because you had to kill your, your milk and clothing machines to eat them. The cattle were, were even more seldomly eaten. More seldomly. That's probably not a good sentence. I think you get the point. The cattle were the heavy machinery. That's what they plowed with. So the loss of any of these things individually might be survived, but together this would spell the total economic failure. Loss of daily provisions, loss of economic strength, loss of any hope for basic survival. This is the end. This is when a people group starves to death. And we sit around and gripe about the price of stuff like I just did or copays or lumber but it kind of makes you think differently doesn't it this is a man writing poetry about what will be the death of his people and what does he say as if to summarize, though it all collapse on my head. Look at verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. And then he talks about feet like a deer and treading on high places. Look at that in a second, but don't miss the, the, the dramatic turn here. It's not that he's saying that he'll just tie a knot in the rope and hang on. He's saying when Babylon does its worst, I'm going to trust, but more than that, I'm going to rejoice. And folks, this is, this is the... the the crisis moment. This, this is what that's set up at the beginning. We've got all the, the toys that, that make life so much different than life for Habakkuk, but we've never solved the mystery. What do we do when we get to the end of ourselves? Uh, how does this work? How do you rejoice? And really, that's, that, that's what, when everything's fine, we'll spend our resources on feeling good and enjoying ourselves. How does one rejoice when he doesn't have anything to rejoice about? Is it, at this point, he's been taken down to nothing. It's the same as the ash heap that Jonah, not Jonah, but Job, was sitting on. And what you're going to have to do is just stare at this verse right here. And you're going to find that the answer to that question is within the verse. Though our minds, our cultures, our upbringing, they all make us want to read the verse the wrong way. We want to look at it and say, rejoice in what? You don't have anything, Habakkuk. How can you rejoice? But he says it right here. I will rejoice in what? In the Lord. That's how you rejoice with nothing. You have a Lord. You don't just have nothing. You have everything. 
But what you're talking about is eternity versus the stuff in your hands here on this planet. And I think that right there would fix about 99% of what's wrong with so many churches in America. They get that backwards. And, and I, I get it. I understand it. They're lost besides the cross. Uh, depraved people who want to f- focus everything they see through the lens of the here and now. But, but think about that. It might go something like this. You need to come to church with me. Why? Well, you need to be saved. Why? Well, it changed my life. How? Well, I had this problem. What? Well, blah, blah, blah. Ooh. But the church fixed it. I got over it. I'm happy now. Okay. Well, I don't have that problem. But you might. What problems do you have? Well, I have this. Well, come to church. I'm sure you can help with that too. You get past your problem and get on to rejoicing and having a good life now. That's not what this is about. And this would never make sense. This whole book right here pretty much just sets a match to the whole prosperity gospel. This book right here would never work in places where everybody's got everything they needs need unless, of course, somehow they have an experience that ties them back to the truth that they're messed up and in need of a Savior. Do you see how, how, how that works? And anyone with any sense would know that the church only offering a a good time is delusional because everyone deep down knows life isn't like that. And churches where people's smiles look plastic doesn't do the gospel of Jesus Christ any good. And so many times we, we think that that's the way it works. So we work hard to have what we think that Christians should expect, an insulation from all this other stuff. And then the smile looks more and more plastic. And people are going more and more, I don't get that and I certainly don't want it. Habakkuk lets us know we don't need to put on the plastic smile. The gospel is only ever meant to supply you with the precise thing you don't have. And that's life, eternal. And it's by salvation in your Lord, not in anything you brought to the table. Look how he describes it. It helps a little bit. The God, the Lord, is my strength. So he admits that he doesn't have any strength. How more weak could you get than total economic collapse? It's only a matter of time before either we're killed or we starve. I'd call that weak. So where's his strength from? His resolve, his individuality, his uh, profile on social media. That stuff would be ridiculous. It's the strength of his Lord. And then this business of feet like a deer. Any of you want to say that that's probably so he could run faster? Deer can run pretty quick. They seem light on their feet. That's not it. Now, little speculation. But we've got reason from other places in Scripture. This is to describe... The deer's ability to be sure-footed on rocky terrain. Any of you that have been to the Holy Land, on your way to the Dead Sea in the bus, did any of you see an ibex standing 
on a place, you had to wonder, how in the world did he get there? There's no path, there's no steps, just little tiny edges on rocks that those little hooves that God gave them allow them to run up and down, not carefully and wobbly negotiate. There's a video, I don't remember when I came across it, but it's, it's like these deer and ibex that, that scale this huge dam to lick the salt off the rocks. And, and just watching them do their thing is incredible. That's what that is. Now you tell me. Your lost friends, colleagues, that don't weekly gather around this book. They don't know it or have a working understanding. If you're trying to explain to them the importance of this and how it will do them any good. Do you think it would make any difference if you changed your tactics and ask them if they'd like a sure footing for a treacherous life rather than a picnic in the sun. This church has good picnics. But it has to be more than that. Because there might come a day where we don't have anything to have a picnic over. And when we're at that spot, a sure foot when the ground is crumbling underneath you will be your only salvation. Now we're talking about doom here, right? We're not there yet. And we may never be, not this generation. Things are moving fast, maybe it could be. But what is it that we really need? I think we would do the lost community a great service by explaining to them salvation the way the Bible explains it to us. Rather than the other way around. A good Sunday school class is a wonderful thing. This church has really good Sunday school classes. I remember, I think, telling you that I had asked someone to explain to me. How that on the bulletin I had a copy of. 80% of the folks that came to worship service were in Sunday school. What would you do? Build a new building? Well, yes. But it was like that before. And it was like that since. Until last March. And the group of people who, when you have a problem, will bring enough food to your house to feed the neighborhood. And will send you cards and say things that only a brother and sister in Christ could say to one another. These things are important. They're special. It's what God gave us. He's loving us through each other with that. But a couple of months after the funeral, when the meals have been eaten, the cards have been opened, the calls have been received, that person has to crawl into bed alone. They need more than a Sunday school class. Even the best Sunday school class. They're going to need a God of salvation to rejoice through the rough parts of this life until we live with that Savior for eternity. I'm thankful to the Lord for a man named Habakkuk who had the guts to complain 
but had the wisdom to be quiet. And let us in on the process between the two, right? He said in verse 4 of chapter 2, the just will live by faith. That's what the righteous do. But it involves quietly waiting, knowing the enemy will never get the last word. So if you want to write down a summary for this chapter, maybe for the whole book, I think this describes it best. As far as Habakkuk goes, as the situation went from bad to worse, the outlook went from complaint to joy. So as the situation we find ourselves in goes from bad to worse, may God grant us the ability to go from complaining to rejoicing. And as we have less and less to hold on to as the form of false idols, we see more clearly the resource we have in the God of our salvation. And if you notice at the end... To the choir master with stringed instruments. So I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to turn over the balance of this service to the choir master. Let's pray. Father in heaven. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its comfort. We thank you for the resolve and the resilience and the strength of the human frame. We thank you for common grace that allows things on this planet to be far better than they should or could be. We thank you for all the things you've given us that we've made with our hands, developed to rule the earth and subdue it, as you told Adam to do. But Lord, curse the day that we look to ourselves for salvation. And Lord, do whatever it takes to bring us back to the realization that there's no joy except in you. Lord, we thank you for this little book and for these weeks to study. Thank you for the reference we'll need for the remainder of the year and the years to come. Lord, give us somebody to share this with too. To be a blessing. And to be of use to you who... When you arrived, you saved us. We ask all this in your name. Amen.